I'm Steve Backshaw, and you're listening to the Aussie Wildlife Show. Hey guys, welcome to the Aussie Wildlife Show. Adrian here, and I'm here, of course, with Steve. Good day, guys. Uh, and we're very lucky today to have with us zoologist and paleontologist from Murdoch University, Natalie Warburton. Hello, Natalie. Hello, Adrian. Hi, Steve. How's it going? Very, very good. And can I say that Aaron Kamers is here, and you guys know Aaron. He's been on a couple of times, and um, we're interviewing Natalie, but Aaron's just here. He's my taxi driver. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for having me in the background. Yeah. <laughs> Always happy to have you here, Aaron. Um, so, Natalie, can you talk a little bit about the work that you do, working out how you know animals do their thing, particularly with Australian native mammals, and it's one of my favourite subjects. And yeah, for sure. So that's a big question. So I guess I I'm a I studied zoology and I got really interested in how animal bodies are put together and how that works. So why one animal would look a particular way or its limbs are in a particular orientation and all that sort of stuff. So I got really interested in how the muscles interact with the bones and how that's evolved in different groups. And so, of course, in paleontology, generally what you've got is bones and teeth and sometimes fossil footprints and things like that. But... Um, there's lots of markings on bones that are left there by the muscles that were there when that animal was alive and moving. And so what I tend to do is study the muscles in extant things and apply that understanding then to extinct things. That's interesting. So that would be pretty useful for things that didn't go extinct too long ago. Yeah, so obviously the more closely related something is to an extant um, ancestor or some a near relative, the closer the comparisons will be that you can make. But there's also some really nice patterns that we get um, through evolutionary convergence, so things that evolve to behave in a similar way or live in a similar environment, even though they might have evolved from very different ancestors, they come to look very, very similar. So, for example, mole-like animals look the same on lots of different continents. We've got marsupial moles in Australia that nobody really knows about, but there's moles in Europe and Asia, and then there's golden moles in Africa. And they're all recognisable because they have a mole-like body. And so we call that convergence, that they've come from a very distant ancestor that didn't look anything like a mole, um, and they've evolved to look the same because they have a similar lifestyle now. Because they're, they're all living within the same phenomena, the same kind of environments, I guess, yeah. Yeah, they're using their environment in the same way, yeah. Like a thylacine and a dog, I guess. Yeah, yeah. It's a nice. So there's lots of kind of analogies and um, patterns that people draw between Australian marsupials or marsupials generally, and the placental group that are found through other continents. So the the thylacine and and dog-like animals look similarish, but there's lots of kind of differences, and people will argue with different um, veracity about how close a thylacine is to a dog. But yeah, they are the most dog-like of of the marsupials to have evolved. Um, if you look at the facial shape or the skull shape of kangaroos, they look very much like antelopes because they're eating in a similar way. So you get lots of convergence in skull morphology, jaw shape, jaw muscles, those sorts of things. What are some other nice examples of convergence? Donuts and mice. Hmm. Yep. I mean, you can talk about on, on superficial levels, things like a hedgehog and an echidna in Australia as well. But one of the challenges that we face is 
trying to communicate a not very well-known animal to an international audience who knows placental mammals better so we kind of might put a placental mammal tag on it so they can get some kind of idea of what it might have looked like and when it comes to the Australian fauna we even do it between extinct and living Australian animals in terms of calling things like a giant wombat even if it's not related to wombats yeah because as you said in the very first podcast you came on the Aussie Wildlife Show that the diprotodon isn't a giant wombat despite the wine and all the books and all the people that there's a wine <laughs> there's always a wine. There's a wine, yeah. Um, so it's a giant one. But Thascolonus is the giant uh-huh. wombat. And Diprotodon, it's a whole different family in the same water. Isn't Absolutely. Marsupial mole, can we come back to yeah. that? Yeah. That's a weird thing because, like you say, not many people know about it. It's a weird-looking dude. They're awesome. They're so cool. So I guess how big are they? They're about the size of a chocolate bar, about 50 grams. So they're pretty small, sit in the palm of your hand. And they don't have any eyes they don't have any external ears. They're just covered all over in like a silky golden fur. They're really pretty. And in areas where there's lots of red dirt, they kind of get stained a sort of pinky, a rose gold sort of a colour. They're really pretty. And they've got really short muscular arms and legs because that's how you dig. And the claws on their fingers have evolved into these almost enormous blades that they use as shovels and they swim through the sand. So they don't look like anything else except golden moles in the Namib Desert, which, you know, are probably 125 million years separate. So they're super cool. So weird. Are these the, the, I could be completely wrong, are these the the ones where you see that cute picture of of one eating a gecko. Yes, and I yeah. don't know that they would ever eat a gecko. I think that was a captive oh, was one it? that was well posed. I think uh, they actually eat smaller things than the big gecko. Oh, right, because uh, that's, that's in the mammals of Australia. But it is in the mammals of Australia. Is that where I, that's probably edition. where I've yeah. seen it. I, yeah. That just came to my head then. Yeah. It's exactly oh, that one. Yeah, yeah that's cool. And that, so that's a huge claw. I never thought about it, but it looks like a, a yabby or something. Yeah, it? yeah it does. <laughs> it does look like yeah. a Yeah, so they, wow. they don't articulate like yabby claws would, but, but it's basically two great big claws that they use as their shovel as they're moving the soil. Far out. That's so strange. Yeah. No one's ever been able to keep one alive in captivity for any amount of time, have they? No. They're very difficult to feed, and we know so little about them. So I actually studied marsupial mole body form, muscles and skeletons for my PhD, and the year before I'd started that, when I was studying in zoology at UWA, my supervisor um, managed to acquire one because one had been found on a mine site. They sometimes come up after rain. Oh, wow. and, and he had approval to be able to capture one and keep one to look at its physiology. So basically its met- metabolism and um, how it uses energy and how much oxygen it uses when it's digging. And so we kept it in the lab for, for a number of weeks, but it was very difficult to convince it to eat things or find things that it wanted to eat but it's pretty cool so to work out how much energy it was using when it was burrowing had had it in this amazing setup made out of one of those lovely round christmas biscuit tins okay (laughs) (laughs) so it could kind of go along like a hamster wheel but in the sand was amazing so it was a pretty special thing to see (laughs) is there my sci-fi side coming out a little bit here is there an extinct animal or dinosaur that's like a massive version of that a megafauna mole, Aaron. Yes. Oh. <clears throat> so there's a whole group of extinct or mostly extinct South American mammals that are called xenarthrans. And so they're giant ground sloth 
those kinds of things. Wow. And one of them, an animal called Glyptodon, had a big um, armoured shell over the top of it. It wasn't so much a burrower, um, but some of the aspects of its morphology are similar, in, not in the sense that it's adapted to digging, but it's a kind of a big round animal. And then some of the other ground sloths have these huge claws to the point where they were digging burrows through limestone that were about a metre and a half high. Wow. <laughs> um, so they've got that kind of same weaponry on the front end that the marsupial moles have. But, yeah, I don't think there are really any... I mean, like they're, they're the biggest example they're of the, the burrowing ones. mammals. Yeah. Interesting. Uh, but yeah. Yeah, but living, living armadillos in different places... Um, obviously our wombats, snuffles. Snuffle, can, can we quickly plug the um, Australian Mammal Conference next year? Yes, I think we should. So next year, we, we've just had this year's uh, Mammal Conference in, in Perth and next it's going to be in Adelaide. So we, we would love... That would be way better than the Perth one. Well, <laughs> way there's going to be snuffles. So I think a mammal conference where we actually have some live mammals come along will be very exciting. And the Australian Mammal Society is a very friendly society for anybody that's interested in, in Australian wildlife. We love people to join and uh, there's... As long as they're mammals. As long as they're mammals, <laughs> I don't know. We'll see. But, you know, um, so there's there's a journal that comes out. There's newsletters. There's lots of opportunities to find out what people are doing in mammal research, and it's um, a great opportunity for research students to come and present their stuff as well. So we look forward to meeting lots of new people in Adelaide for Mammal Conference next year. Yeah, I'm super keen to get along and see some of the talks, and we might hang around and see if we can get some people on the show. Uh, hopefully, we get a lot of podcasts out of that. I think That'd you will. Good. Yeah. So you've offered to take some snakes too, haven't you, Steve, to the conference? Uh, yeah, I'm happy to do that. I think it will be very interesting for them. It's like a fight club. <laughs> um. I can handle snakes eating mammals. I struggle with the frogs that get the bats. That's just not right. Ah, oh. frogs that eat bats. Are there, are there, there's oh, footage yeah. of green... Are they the green tree frogs? And, or some of the big tree frogs that sit around the entrance of a cave... And when the bats fly out at night time, they get think, eaten by an amphibian. It's just wrong. Wow. I think they're happy to eat whatever fits in their mouth. Yeah. So. But you're all right with the pythons that are hanging down there eating the bats? Yeah, that's all right. It's just a frog thing. Yeah, no. You've, amphibians, no. Reptiles, okay. Amphibian problem. Everyone's got a line. You've got to have yeah. a line. <laughs> <laughs> if there's ever an amphibian found that's got a pouch, she's going to. Oh, it's going to be there so hard. There is a marsupial hard. frog. Yeah, marsupial oh. frogs. Tuck go. it in the skin pouches, carry their babies around. No, that's okay. Oh. They're not eating mammals. <laughs> <laughs> there's even there's plants that eat frogs. Look, we could end up yeah. in all sorts of weird places, well, couldn't we? Anyway, I think that's a good place to leave it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Aaron's sitting there thinking, why have we got on the plants yeah. that eat frogs? <laughs> <laughs> Always happy to talk about plants. No, um, no, those picture plants, they yes. know, absorb the yeah. frog and, yeah, yeah. So we, we were talking about marsupial mole, weren't we? we? We spoke a bit about convergent evolution. Yeah. We got onto the marsupial mole. So I guess some other examples of convergent evolution are things like the Tasmanian devil and something like a wolverine. So you've got a, a stocky little carnivorous scavenger type of thing that'll eat whatever it can find. But then we've got some the opposite of convergence, 
is divergence. So this is where you start with one ancestor that looks a particular way and behaves in a particular way and it evolves into other interesting sorts of things. And so we've got lots of kangaroo type things. You've got lots of interesting things with big feet that hop around here. Amongst that group, that bigger group that we call wallabies or macropodids and things like that, there's a really weird group that have evolved to climb trees. So tree kangaroos have evolved from kangaroo ancestors that were modified, evolved to hop efficiently around on land, and they decided there was tasty enough stuff up a tree to clamber up a tree. Now, if you ever try and, you know, can you imagine a western grey kangaroo-sized thing clambering up a tree? Sort of defies logic a little bit. So tree kangaroos are a really interesting example that go in the opposite direction. Yeah, yeah, tree kangaroos are super interesting and there used to even be some giant ones of those too, didn't there? They sure did, yes. So that's a really interesting story as well. So um, tree kangaroos now, there's two species that are very localised in patches of rainforest in far north Queensland and there's eight or so species that are native to New Guinea as well. So they're only found in really dense rainforest habitat and so evolutionarily it's been believed that that was where they evolved. They evolved from forest dwelling wallabies that, that went back into taking advantage of food that would have been in the canopy. But um, over the last 15 or so years, Gavin Prito and I have been identifying different tree kangaroo fossils from different sites around Australia. And some of the interesting ones, the most interesting ones, come from places where there aren't trees now. So there was tree kangaroos on the Nullarbor Plain 50,000 years ago, which is a really interesting story and pretty ironic, really. I love that. Yeah, you told me that when um, I was bringing some animals in for one of Aaron's trackway lectures, which we can talk about because that was awesome. Um, and the irony is that Nullarbor is Latin for no trees. Correct. So what was, they, they were lost or there were trees in the Nullarbor once? So what this means is if there was tree-adapted tree tree-climbing kangaroos on the Nullarbor and they actually evolutionary related to, they're probably ancestral to modern tree kangaroos, um, it wasn't rainforest. But this tells us that tree kangaroos didn't evolve in rainforest. They evolved in a much more open, varied habitat. And it tells us that the environment on the Nullarbor had a much more diverse flora, much more different um, mm. composition of within the ecosystem than has been previously recognised at that time. So that's pretty cool. But it also doesn't mean that it's necessarily uh, what we would think of as a forest. You know, open woodland or even those kind of semi-arid areas that might have mallee and casuarinas and things, so the she-oaks and, and those arid adapted uh, plants. And then the question becomes, well, if it's only those kind of small trees that don't have a lot of nutrient content, what are these big climbing kangaroos eating? And we still don't have an answer for that We question. still don't know. <laughs> yep, we're, we're looking forward to somebody coming up with some great ways of working out what sorts of plants were around at that time to help fill in some of the gaps in the story. That the giant extinct tree kangaroos once consumed. Yeah. Ah. Um, Queenie the quokka. Yes. Was, I think she's hopping around here somewhere. She's always up on top of things, climbing around. So yep. they, they actually climb like small trees and stuff and they'll get 10 feet in the air and eat leaves. So they're kind of on, yeah. maybe on their way. 
Yeah, so quokka, <laughs> yeah, quokkas are pretty versatile like that. They do do a lot of clambering around. And so one of the ways that we established that these fossils were tree kangaroos was by looking at particularly their ankle bones. So kangaroo ankles, big hopping kangaroos, have got ankle bones that come together in such a way that you get a really nice hinge movement, but you don't get any sort of lateral rotation side to side type movements because what they want to do is keep their legs nice and straight to make it as efficient as possible for hopping you know big bounds over a long distance very efficiently but when you look at the smaller things like quokkas they actually have much more mobile joints between their ankle bones and they have relatively shorter feet um, and all of those things make them more maneuverable so when we look at the, the bones in the fossil tree kangaroos, we can see similarities with things like quokkas, but then tending towards the modern tree kangaroos, which have the most mobile ankle joints to enable them to grip trees and move around in that really irregular sort of three-dimensional environment that the canopy in trees enables them to move through. That's almost going back to their possum ancestor, isn't it? Yeah. That, that movement there. Yeah, so yeah. A, a secondary adaptation or a reversion to a, a lifestyle that was in a much further back ancestor. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, the big difference, I mean, because sometimes we let our quokkas hang out and hop around with the rock wallabies, and you look at a rock wallaby's tail and it's stupid long, and we, and they're related to tree kangaroo. Well, they're... Yes, they are, yep. Distantly, like 13 million, I don't even know, you, you'd know. That's pretty close for us. Okay. Um, <laughs> like the tree kangaroos and the rock wallabies had those huge long tails, so the rock wallabies yeah. use it as a rudder when they're jumping. But the quokka's got a stupid little tail, like a patty melon little tail, so... If they want to be good in the trees, do you reckon they need a bigger tail? Yeah, that's right. So, okay. so it's about what they what an animal habitually does. So, we can eat lots of different things, but what an animal is specialised to eat will be the thing that you can see traces of in its skull and its jaw muscles. In the same way that an animal that spends most of its time in the trees will have adaptations that enable it to hold on and to balance so a long tail is great for balancing if you're moving and having to kind of change your direction and, and your distribution of body weight fairly rapidly whereas a pocket can climb but it's not going to be the most efficient thing at, at getting around in the trees you said that's interesting you said that um you get food particles from the jaw bones. Are you talking about, is that what you just said, to tell mm. what they're eating? No, no, no. Sorry. So so um, the shape of the jaw bones oh, okay. and the shape of the skull and, and what that tells you about the muscles and how they were attached. And so animals that are generalists will have the skull and jaw muscles that are able to cope with lots of different things as opposed to an animal that's a specialist grass eater or a specialist fruit eater or a specialist meat eater and they will have jaw muscles and skull shape that reflect this um, way in which they are processing food so a meat eater can eat lots of things but it's most efficient at eating meat Right, that's interesting. Um, a lot of tree kangaroos have been turning up blind, in, and, and that's a really weird thing because they can still climb trees blind. That's that's weird. Yeah, I, th <clears throat> I don't think that they're necessarily completely blind. Sometimes they're like really short-sighted. Okay. Um, but yeah, I'm not sure what the maybe it, it, there's a lot of feel involved in sort of being able to get up a trunk okay as well that's a, the, yeah. more like stevie wonder blind <laughs> so <laughs> we, we can still walk down a path blind we can mm. but the, but up a tree you're sort of hopping from a branch to a branch blind it doesn't make sense 
<laughs> well, a lot of the, the blind ones are those that are stuck on the ground or wandering oh, okay. around. Um, so the, I think the theory at the moment is that as rainforest is being cut down, it's resulting in what we what's called an edge effect. So the, the uh, trees that are closest to the edge are often under more physiological stress. And so they produce more tannins or more toxins. And that means that the health of the kangaroos that are feeding on those trees also deteriorates. And there may be a link between the extra chemicals that are in those leaves and the eyesight of the kangaroos. Oh. Yeah, they're being defensive chemicals, the plants yeah. are producing. Or just that there's more than they would normally have to deal with and their metabolisms can't cope with it. And one of the things that's deteriorating is the eyes. Yeah, I but heard that. But it's yeah. also, it's not actually, that there's no physical obstruction on the eye. It's not that there are cataracts growing or something. It's actually something to do with the connection between the eyes and the brain that is being affected. Oh, okay. And that work is mainly being carried out by a scientist called Karen Coombs, who's working up in the Atherton Tablelands on tree kangaroos. Yeah. Yeah, I follow her on Facebook. We have the odd chat. Um, and we had my partner, Diane Pearson, on the show, and she talked about kangaroos after coming back from spending a couple of weeks up there oh, with, with Karen. Yeah, and you guys went up and visited Karen yeah, too, didn't you? Yeah, we've been up there and... Done a little, had a little look at some tree kangaroo locomotion with that. Yeah, how awesome! How awesome! What an awesome animal! It sounds like um, sounds like us having a reaction to alcohol and getting blind drunk. It's exactly it's what kind it is. of yeah. the same, isn't it? Yeah, it's all toxic. <laughs> 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 so, how um, if you find a, a completely new set of fossils, how would you tell if that was a marsupial or? Ah, good question. So on Thank a you. skull, <laughs> on a skull, there's a number of features that you can look for that give you hints that it's much more like a marsupial than a placental. So teeth are the first thing that we would look for. Um, teeth obviously correlate really well with what an animal eats, but there's particular patterns that are more like marsupial traits. So they tend to have a greater number of incisors at the front. Um, obviously all the herbivorous group have that specialization where they just have the two big teeth on the lower jaw. Um, what about cheek teeth? They have three premolars and four molars in marsupials and then in placental mammals this it's the other way around. So there are three molars and four premolars but that's kind of a generalized form and then you see lots and lots of different groups diverging away from that to the yeah. point where some have none and some um, there's a really exciting kangaroo um, called the Narbalek that yep it's one of the rock wallabies yep. and it actually produces what we call supernumerary so it keeps producing more than you would expect a marsupial or a mammal to produce so it actually produces Is that molar almost, progression yeah well lots of kangaroos have molar progression which means as the molars erupt so they come through the jaw and they've got nice fresh cusps on them so they're good at cutting and they move forward to the point where they do most of the cutting in their jaw and as that gets worn down the next one comes up behind and kind of pushes it forward so you're ending up with cut, fresh cutting surfaces on the teeth makes them hard to age as, as the teeth move forward right. but the narbalex so but for most kangaroos there's a set number that they will produce but narbalex okay. seem to be able to produce kind of as many oh. as they yeah. they keep going through their life which They're is just interesting got a conveyor belt of oh, do they eat they, they must eat 
something more harsh for their teeth or really tough grapes but presumably yeah yeah i mean they're up north in in western australia so presumably Mm. we saw the only captive Mm. narbalek in the world norbert the narbalek at the territory (laughs) wildlife park (laughs) cute they would not let you take that home would they no no they would not that's why we haven't been back um is that and they're like a the smallest yeah, it's the Mondon. Yeah, that? so some of those really little, yeah. little rock wallabies. So, yeah, teeth is always something that's super informative and okay. they preserve quite well in the fossil record. But then other things on skulls. Um, so if you look at the shape of the nasal bones, um, they get wider towards the back rather than the front, um, which is opposite to a placental. The what we call the lacrimal duct, which is a little hole that sits kind of in the corner of your eye, which is where surplus tears drain through. Um, that sits outside the eye socket in marsupials as opposed to inside wow. the eye oh, socket. Wow. Yeah. Um, the mandible, at the back of the mandible, it gets really flared out, so it looks really broad, kind of at the corner of the lower jaw. Um, There's a little corner called a marsupial shelf. Where the uh, jaw the, muscles on the go in. On the back of the yeah. jaw. Oh, wow. Yeah. As, she, as she says next, plus there's a pouch, Steve. <laughs> <laughs> Doesn't fossilise very well, but sometimes. <laughs> yeah, so we don't... <coughs> of course, we don't see um, the pouch fossilise, but places like Lake Calabona, out east of the Flinders Ranges, where megafauna got stuck in the mud, actually have pouch young still in the pouch. Wow. of the adult individual. So we know that they're not, you know, because they're marsupials, they're not produce, reproducing like placental mammals with a well-formed fetus. This is actually an animal that was live and running around outside mum, but was in the pouch when mum died. So we do have very rare cases where we get that kind of information preserved. Amazing. Mm. Yeah, that is amazing. You showed me a... Am I allowed to talk about the Joey diprotodon? Yeah. Yeah. That was... So, in fact, the first diprotodon Joey from Calabona was actually found in 1893. So there have been a, a few found. But unfortunately, the three that were found on that trip were all removed from the mother skeleton. So the, because marsupials don't ha- have sexually dimorphic pelvis in the same way that placental mammals do, because they give birth to little tiny jelly beans, um, you can't sex a marsupial from its skeleton as easily. Uh-huh. Um, so finding one with pouch young is the only way often that you can say this animal was definitely a female. So it's really important that you have that association between the young and the mother to be able to sex the skeleton as well. That's really interesting. So just going a step forward from that, so that's placental mammals and marsupials, how do you tell if it's a snake? <laughs> pouch steve yeah <laughs> um okay <laughs> just count the legs yeah, yeah. <laughs> well some of them have legs two back legs. weird yeah yeah, yeah. We, we've got a great um murray darling carpet python there that's got really long what are they the cloacal spurs, spurs on the end of the femur bones and yeah they're like long claws that they're just scary. vestigial, but they mm. secondarily use them to stimulate the female during reproduction. The um, sexual dimorphism is an excellent one that I've done some work on as well. So while um, for most marsupials you can't tell from their skeleton whether they're male or female, the kangaroos 
when they get those big muscly males you can see that and so um i actually dissected a huge number of kangaroo arms and took off all of the muscles with a couple of colleagues of mine back in western australia and we weighed all of the individual arm muscles in a heap of um, western grey kangaroos to show that the males don't just get bigger arms it's not just a scaled up female they actually get some muscles selectively bigger so the muscles that they use to grapple to hold onto their opponents when they're trying to bash each other up are the muscles that get disproportionately three times larger than you would expect it to be if it was just a scaled up female so you can see those shapes on the bones when they had those massive muscle development as well and so um, for some of the fossils that we've got from the Nullarbor caves that I've been looking at with Gavin um, we've got two beautiful skeletons of a um, fairly unknown species called congruous kitcheneri um, and it's got similar development of all of these different features but one of them's got nice thin elegant arms and the other one's got great big massive muscular arms and it's like oh okay they're the same species but one of them is a male and one of them is a female if we're going with that being a fairly standard pattern in large macropodids so it's pretty cool that's pretty cool so that's new stuff so yeah that one was published at the beginning of this year and really interestingly it was also possibly climbing trees as well so it wasn't a tree kangaroo it wasn't in the family that we would call tree kangaroos but it looks like it was another sort of wallaby that was trying to get up trees which is a really unusual thing to find generally a second group of kangaroos that evolved to try and access food in trees but um, in that Nullarbor area again. So there was obviously some really interesting different patterns in in how the environment was working at that time from what we currently understand. Mm. So understand the environment from interpretation of bones of extinct animals. That's interesting. Um, Do you ever look at marsupials from other continents? Uh, I haven't had much opportunity to do so. I occasionally get emails from interesting people that are saying, would you like to work on opossums? And I say, I'd love to work on opossums. (laughs) (laughs) But it's a bit hard to, it's been very difficult over the last few years to tee up travel and all of that sort of stuff. So it would be very cool at some point. And it can be really important for understanding how certain structures evolve as well, to look at those more distantly related marsupials and it can be a case of being able to identify convergence where if, you, if it's a shared thing that they've they're separated enough then it's probably related to how the animal lives but it can also help you identify shared traits that are just part of being a marsupial where especially when you're looking at animals that have diverged that long ago it must be so hard when you're looking at these fossils and things and you, you've obviously got not literally but kind of a a tick sheet as to work out what that is and at the same time you've got to try and keep an open mind in case something's different and like it's so much to think about and you're you're working with so many gaps aren't you like the gaps in the history going back like it's not like you've got a complete history of all the marsupials from the beginning of marsupials you just get these areas where fossils were preserved and then you typically might just get a few bones you you know you don't often get a full specimen yeah Um, absolutely so one of the amazing things about those nullivore um specimens and also the ones that aaron's been getting from lake calabona are that they are 
almost intact skeletons in you know different states of preservation but for many fossil sites it's a water body where something's fallen in and it's all got mixed up and washed along and it all ends up spread out but in the Nullarbor Caves and at Lake Calabonna you've got different sorts of examples where animals have stayed together so whether they've fallen into a giant pitfall trap of a cave and crawled off into a corner and just you know mummified over there or they've got stuck in the mud and all of their bones have stayed together gives us an amazing opportunity to put the bodies back together so a lot of the species that we work on have been named already but they've often only been named on the basis of you know a bit of a skull or maybe a few teeth Mm -hmm. and so we're actually able to go back and say all right so this thing that you thought was a pretty typical sort of a wallaby actually it's pretty weird because we can put the rest of the body back onto it now so that's a really cool thing to be able to do that's interesting Mm. and the flip side of that as well though is that we often work in a community of people who have expertise in a whole range of different animals so that if something does come up that we're not sure about that might be a new species then we're kind of increasing the chances that that gets detected by working with lots of different people because it is very difficult to know Mm. all of the different aspects that you're looking at. So Nat and I quite often will focus on the postcranial morphology, so understanding what's going on in the rest of the skeleton. Um, And certainly Nat's done a whole bunch of cranial things, morphology things too, but uh, quite often you might end up specialising in one particular area rather than knowing all of it or knowing all of the different groups of animals teeth i can't do teeth (laughs) so much information absolutely yeah this and and we sit here and i've said this before i think i may have said it to you aaron on the show that we just have these conversations and you just say this amazing stuff but this is whole background of all the different people's work that they've put in to get these conversations now and it's we're so grateful and there's so much work sitting there needed to be done i guess oh huge amounts of stuff and yeah it's it's also a great thing about paleontology is that you do get to work with lots of different people um people that come in with different expertise whether it's geology or chemistry of how you age things or you know all sorts of different stuff so it's a great great field to work in very exciting yeah and another group that really needs the acknowledgement too is there's a lot of the fieldwork side of things that gets aided by volunteers and or even you know sometimes the first discoveries don't involve paleontologists at all it's a farmer out in his field or it's you know a caver (laughs) (laughs) who stumble across these fossils and then bring them to a museum or bring them to the notice of someone who studies them who then make it happen and without all of that on the ground time and often that can be a huge amount of work it doesn't even get to the stage where there's a specimen that we can start working on and and trying to figure out what it was capable Mm. of i mean cavers must already have an interest in finding something new because i can't think of any other reason to do that (laughs) (laughs) it scares me yeah just just exploring new places and yeah yeah, we've been you know paleontology as a as a field has been so lucky to have interested people finding things and recognizing that that is important um in the same way that you know people collect dead things off the side of the road and hand it into a museum because it's all valuable information you know and you might not be able to see what the application of that is but somebody will be able to answer a question with the information you can get from that that specimen well, it's not just everything that happened in the past that can give us information for the future as well i guess which is what i find interesting hmm. 
Yeah, it helps us understand a much bigger picture. We, we're good as, as humans at seeing what's kind of happening in a fairly short distance from us. Mm. Um, you know, hopefully we can be open-minded to and, and interested to take an interest in things that are happening more widely from us at our mm. current time, but we're not necessarily very good at piecing together or putting together information over different timescales. And so that's one of the really interesting challenges. And I think diff- people have different sorts of brains that are able to deal with those temporal changes, those changes through time um, as well. So you've got, you know, so many different dimensions of, of information. Mm. Yeah, it's fascinating. You can lose yourself. I'm always um, impressed with Aaron's ability to do that and, and yours too. Mm. Um, just going back to the Nullarbor, the Mundrabilla Cave had that thylacine specimen that was pretty well intact and all the crazy thylacine people thought that was proof that thylacines are still here because it had fur and yeah, the, the stripes. And it's been a couple of mummified ones that have turned up at different stages. Yeah. So I think um, the current view is uh, that thylacines became extinct five or 6,000 years yeah, ago. Yeah, I think the youngest one's about 3,300 okay. years old. It might, might even be the Mundrabilla um, one but yeah so it's there's definitely overlap between thylacines and ding, dingo introduction on the mainland um, you've got, yeah. you got to wonder don't you <laughs> yeah it's a, it's a it's a great shame so there was um yeah they were extinct on the mainland by the time uh european invasion we might say happened <laughs> changes <laughs> happened here despite um, what some people might want to believe yeah <laughs> i was born on invasion day uh that and then, then the tragic the tragic story of thylacines in tasmania just mm-hmm. just awful and they're just such a you know you see the photos of them and they were so magnificent and you're mm. just I'm sure they're one of the things that you just want i would just i you know they're just beautiful but this also creates a lovely segue into another one of nat's major projects in the thylacine atlas oh yes we did we did work on thylacines didn't we <laughs> so um one of the things that we try to do in helping paleontologists and zoologists in other parts of the world that don't have access to some of the specimens that we are lucky enough to have access to is to produce great quality photographs that are labeled that people can use and so a couple of years ago we Got a whole lot of photos together of thylacine skeletons from the South Australian Museum and the WA Museum. Aaron took a lot of photos of carpal bones, wrist bones and ankle bones. Um, and I spent a lot of time putting labels on them. And so we did publish that as a, as a great resource, the Atlas of the Thylacine Skeleton that um, is published through the Paleontologica Electronica Journal. So it's free to download, um, probably through libraries that have access to that journal. Mm-hmm. And it's a wonderful collection. Yeah. And and this is um, sort of brings to light as well a major thing that Nat's underselling herself on here, and that is that there are very, very few resources of relating to marsupial anatomy, and most of them were published in the late 1800s or early 1900s. Wow. And if you want a modern paper or publication that looks at... Me- marsupial skeletal or muscular morphology chances are Nat's it was published by me (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's a bit funny sometimes I go oh I hope there was a resource for that and I'll google it and it's stuff that my that I've published that comes up (laughs) 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 I mean I'm working working in a niche you know it's good to have a niche there's not a lot of not a lot of competition in my niche but um it also does do 
does mean that it's it's come from a long time of looking at those very old papers and dissecting a lot of things and understanding those the patterns that you get in animal anatomy and how how you can transfer that from one species to another um, and and from from one skeleton to another so yeah and have been doing it for quite a long time now and that breadth of animals that you look at is a real strength as well and it's not just limited to marsupials Perth Zoo have been very kind as well in providing some stranger animals we've had some wonderful things passed on very lucky um, that people recognize the value in animals so we've had some very special things gifted to us to look at anatomically and that have become part of the collection at the um, vet vet department so I work at where the vet hospital is and, the, and where we, we teach veterinary studies at Murdoch University. So we've had a giraffe skull that came in one day, which was amazing, and we spent a week dissecting that. They're that? actually enormous, aren't they? Giraffe heads. It is truly are enormous. Massive. Yeah, I think uh, one of our favourite things was the tongue that was fifty-five centimetres long. Oh wow! <laughs> that was amazing. Um, and then we had an amazing opportunity when one of the orangutans passed away she was in fact the oldest orangutan ever known so she was 60 63 about 63 years old um, and had been used in the captive breeding program of orangutans lots of her offspring had been sent back to the wild and all those sorts of things and when when she passed away I mean it was they they were interested as well so um you know, they'd noticed changes in her posture and how she was using her hands and feet for moving towards the end of her life. So they were quite interested in um, us having a more detailed look at things like arthritis in, in her skeleton. So that was an amazing opportunity to go through and look at yeah. how the muscles um, were, you know, developed in her body. It just, oh, it was amazing. And then looking at how the muscles connected to the bones and, and the sorts of features that you see, that was that was a really special thing yep. to do. And it's also experiences like that that give you the opportunity or give you the edge when you come to interpreting an extinct animal because you may well be looking at an animal that doesn't have any analogous examples in living marsupials, but there could have been an animal on another continent that actually was doing a similar thing. And so to be able to understand how those animals are put together as well, you can then have more resources to draw on to interpret the fossil animal that you're looking at. Mm. And That's soon you'll have a two-headed snake. <laughs> <laughs> That's going to be amazing. Um, so, so I will say that I have got a, a PhD student, Matt, who's looking at um, jaw muscle development and in snakes and pygopods and things like that. And what he does to look at those, because they're so small, they're too small to dissect, um, we stain them with iodine. So if you put them in an iodine solution, the iodine kind of perfuses into the muscles and then you do a really high-resolution um, CT scan of that specimen and then you can rebuild or reconstruct that anatomy in a three-dimensional digital form. So you could basically do a digital dissection um, of different things. So we will do that. I will so show cool. you the show yeah. you the pictures. Yeah. It's going to be amazing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that does sound amazing. Mark Hutchison was talking about the yeah, CT scan. Yeah, he loves that, doesn't he? Yeah. He's very excited yeah. about the potentiality mm. with that. And you can that image that you scan, you can just flick that off to somebody overseas and they can move it around virtually. And Yeah, and incredible. so there's a, there's a great movement at the moment to try and make as much of 
that stuff widely available so that researchers in other places, again, that don't have access to those things can ask more interesting questions and, and collaborate and enables an amazing collaboration of scientists around the world, which is, which is always fun. So I imagine you all have a kind of portfolio of animals or, or studies that you've done and then as technology comes out, new technology, you kind of have a moment where you think, oh, I'm going to apply that to this thing that I, I put on hold at the moment, but this might take me to the next level. So I guess Absolutely. You've, you've always got work. There's always, there's always more questions. Look, every time we think we're, we're working on one question, we come up with at least 10 new ones as we go along. So, And, and that's also a really good reason to keep specimens in reserve, whether yeah. it be in museum collections or elsewhere, is you don't know what information you can extract in the future that we can't currently extract from a, a given thing. And it's the same for a fossil deposit as well. You know, Look at the Naracourt Caves. Um, They've set aside a whole half of the main deposit just because we don't know what extra information might be able to be extracted from that One using day. future technology that mm. we can't at the moment. So. Mm, interesting. Um, this is a random question that may not have an answer, but there's, there's over 250 species of marsupials in Australia. That wasn't a question. Living today. But do we, do we have a number on the ones that we've identified that are extinct how many marsupials throughout time lived here? I know that's a probably crazy question, but it's no. only... We, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I certainly wouldn't know off the top of my head. I mean, there are far more, far, far more extinct genera than there are living in, in terms of our, what's represented in the marsupial fossil record. But at the same time, um, it can be really difficult to know the number of species that were in a genus or and and what defines a species level boundary mm. in a fossil compared to a living marsupial can be okay. quite different as well so you're kind of looking at two different systems when you're talking about fossil diversity versus living animal diversity yeah okay it's a bit tricky fair it's fair. Yeah, I mean, the, I, I couldn't give you a, a definitive answer or even a remotely um, good answer. But, you know, if we think about just modern diversity in the tree, in, in the kangaroo group, there's, you know, more than 50 species of macropodids that are alive today. And there's certainly at least 50 species that have been named that are, you know, recognisable to what we what we know today so yeah there would have been amazing diversity and different habitats you know like the Nullarbor habitat that has changed um different habitats in different parts of Australia but you know for for paleontology to answer those sorts of questions we're we're at the whim of the world you know some things have been fossilized and some things haven't mm. and so we will have some stories we will have some stories but there'll be other areas for which we never have any idea um and you know you're dealing with a almost a moment in time in a very localized area so it can tell you about that spot but it can't necessarily tell you about what's happening in other places i was just thinking about mm. bullet creek and alcooter yeah. in the northern territory and they say, okay, well, this is a, a fantastic site. We've got all of these things, but, you know, it's, it's just one spot. Yep. And you've raised a really important point there as well, that when we come to thinking about the animals that make up that environment, we often superimpose that our modern flora over the top of that. 
but remember there have been a whole bunch of extinct plants living in many of these ecosystems too and we have a really really poor idea about the level of diversity loss or diversity change in many of the floral ecosystems you know we, we go off pollen and in and it works for some groups it work, um, completely doesn't work for other groups um, in terms of whether or not the pollen preserves and how much it differs between different species so you know there, there may well be a whole range of different animals that are adapted to plants that we haven't even imagined were around in Australian prehistory Wow. So that was a really long answer to your question. I would have just said quite a few. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> that's why I asked these guys. <laughs> yeah. um, and I said we'd mention your trackway um, lecture that we do every year. We bring some animals and uh, you guys make up a runway and put sand on it. And it's a fantastic lecture. And that's where I met Natalie. Yeah, it was um, amazing. You came to see the animals. I did come to cuddle the animals, really. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm really interested in fossil trackways too, but yes. Yeah, it was great. And we always start off with a goanna and you talk about, I should let you. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, There's so there's obviously a whole range of locomotory diversity that goes along with the diversity in different places that animals live within ecosystems so they move in very different ways and the one of the big shifts in vertebrate locomotion has been the way in which they hold their limbs and how that relates to how efficient their locomotion is and the places in which they can move but uh, Natalie's work on the marsupial mole actually directly relates to this as well in terms of um, the kind of locomotion that they use for moving through sand. Yeah, so having legs stuck out on the side. So, you know, we can all picture a fairly typical lizard and its legs are stuck out to the side for the most part and they'll spend a great amount of time just resting on their belly because we all know that doing push-ups is hard work. So they're saving energy by resting on their belly and then they have to push themselves up with their big chest muscles that go across to support their body between their limbs sounds like me yeah practicing push-ups a lot yeah um that's hard work it's not very efficient but if you're doing different sorts of locomotion it can enable you to do different things so platypus for example that swim they have their legs stuck out to the side and so there's a great debate as to whether that is uh, an evolutionary thing that they have their sprawling limb posture because it is good for swimming and echidnas related to platypus also have that sprawling limb posture and that works quite well for their digging and they in fact dig in a very similar way to European moles with their arms stuck out sideways, their humerus stuck out sideways and they rotate their upper arm so that they can dig with their palms which is quite different to how a dog would dig with its legs kind of underneath it moving in that sort of forward and backwards fashion like they, how they run. So yeah, moles dig in a, in sort of a intermediate way as well, sort of that a bit of rotation at the elbow, but also uh-huh. this digging motion as well. So posture changes in broad patterns, but it also changes as you are adapted to moving. So things that climb use mm-hmm. a fairly sprawling sort of a, a pattern so that they can wrap their arms and legs around the trees when they're climbing. So the flexibility you get in the hips of koalas is is different to the flexibility that you get in things that are adapted for running around. So, And this is where the observations of modern animals are really important too. So it's not just about looking at the soft tissue and the muscles of the animals, but actual observations of how marsupials are moving around in their habitat. And many of them are still 
poorly understood. I mean, there's been lots of work done on understanding how a kangaroo hops and why they hop, but in terms of you know understanding some of the earlier ones like Hypsiprimnodon, the musky rat kangaroo, and and how it moves and things, it's it's relatively unknown. And yet, and yet that's the the kind of ancestral example or the the living ancestor, if you like of the whole radiation. So if we want to understand how hopping has evolved, we need to understand how what Hypsiprimnodon is doing. And, you know, we don't, we, that animal's still around today and we don't even have a good idea of what it's doing. So. Yeah, that's interesting. You should get some of the uni. You should get some Hypsiprimnodon. Well, there, yeah, there was a, a group of them collected for research in the 90s that were kind of after that that colony was finished were kind of distributed around to different zoos and institutions and there haven't really been any kept in captivity since then so I think it's been 20 years or something since anybody caught any hypsoprimnodons and yeah so they're the only place to study them at the moment is in the wild. Um, the Yapok is an aquatic marsupial from South America that I know you guys know about. Do we have any aquatic marsupials in Australia? No, no, we don't. So it's a niche that marsupials didn't evolve into here, possibly because the platypus was already filling that niche. And then more recently we've had a number of waves of um, rodents that have come down and evolved in Australia, they come down from Southeast Asia and evolved in Australia to different uh, habitats as well. And so we have the Australian water rat, that, or we call it Rakali in Western Australia, that's Same the northern east of Rakali here. Um, yeah, but there hasn't been, as far as we know, we haven't found a, a swimming marsupial. There, there are also some reproductive limitations to marsupials that's moving into true. an environment. <laughs> okay. A bit damp. So, um, so Chironectes, the, the Yapok, um, is... The, as far as I know, the only marsupial that has specific adaptations to be able to close its pouch so that it can swim and ah. not have its babies drown. Ah, um, that's, that's a nice so, thing to do. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And, and obviously that's still a limited <laughs> amount of time it can spend in the water. So either you have a reproductive strategy where you come out of water for the period where your babies are born and they start developing and then they ride around on your back while you're swimming or something or you stay out of that particular niche why can't they just have backward facing pouches and keep swimming forwards (laughs) (laughs) or just have babies give us snorkels yeah really long noses (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Platypus have a burrow that apparently comes above the water level, and yeah. they keep them in the den, don't they? In the end of the burrow. Yeah. Um, the, apparently, the Yapok male has a pouch for his boy bits. I read that somewhere. Okay, I'll edit that um, out if it's not no, true. I just pack them away every now. And I then. think so. I don't know why they <laughs> care. Yeah. Well, um, thylacines are one of the only Australian marsupials where the males also had a pouch. Um, and I don't maybe think they, they did kept, tuck them away. Yeah, well, I don't know if they kept anything in them, but yeah, usually they snacks. get. Yeah, they're pretty pendulous in most species, and they That's get where they kept their money. Yeah, <laughs> they're so impractical. Get, get fairly bashed around. I think it was a little um, planigale climbing, clambering around on the rocks, with dragging its enormous scrotum along behind it, and getting bashed around as it was 
climbing. Yep, especially on water. Sounds like me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm out. taking that out, Stephen. <laughs> <laughs> if we did a um, reconstruction of you based on things that you yeah, said, you're similar to. So you want me there next <laughs> for your movie? <laughs> I think we can come up with a pretty interesting picture <laughs> of <laughs> <that> organism. <laughs> can we pump him with dye? Can you? <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, Someone say something. <laughs> uh, it's funny you talked about conversion evolution. So many of the animals' names are like, like you said, like well, Tasmanian tiger, um, tiger quoll. Why is it called a tiger quoll when it's got spots? Anyway, um, but but even the scientific names, like people are always quick to correct you when you say koala bear, but its scientific name is Fascalarcus pouch bear, even though we know it's not a bear, but and. Weasel, you know, sneaks into yeah. a lot of the names too. Like Planigar was, was it Flat Weasel? Flat or Weasels. Yep. Yeah, yeah, it's fun. I've got a couple um, of weasels here that you get. Oh, thylacines are a good example of that too. So, means almost literally pouch dog, dog head. Yep. Okay. It's, it's genus and its species name. <laughs> yep. Keep it simple. Yeah. Well, and you came on to talk to us about Thylacoleo, the yep. pouch lion. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and Petrigal, it's rock weasel. Thylacal. Pouch weasel. There's lots of gales. Lots yes. of gales. So if you know somebody called Gale, her name means weasel. weasel. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Sorry, Gale. Sorry, Gale. Um, yeah. Okay. Um, this is the point of the show where I say, is there anything else that... Is, I, I know there's lots of awesome things, but... Um, can you help me prompt you to get some? <laughs> oh, look, I think there's probably if more there is, than don't feel his pressure. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we've no, done well. There's, yeah. I, think, I think you don't want to go too long. So I, I would just say that, you know, my advice to people is always do stuff that you find interesting, you know. Um, I see lots of students at university. I see lots of students that are thinking about going to university and like, oh, I don't know what to do or what sort of a job am I going to get? And I know that myself and pretty much everybody I know didn't go to university with the idea of what the job was going to be at the end. And we we study things because we think that there's interesting stuff there and I just want to find out about that. And, and yeah, we're pretty lucky to be able to do that and to make a living from that but um you know if you do things that you find interesting you will always find more things to do so that's my bit of advice for anybody that's that's thinking about oh do i go to university do i do i do study of animals what do i do it's like oh do things that you love that you're going to want to read about that you're going to want to spend time in the lab measuring that you're going to want to chase or or go across to the other side of the world because you have to see the next species of marsupial or you know run around australia looking for all the species of bird or whatever it is do things that you're passionate about because that's what makes you happy I love, I love that. that. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. Love that. yeah. That's why I love talking to both of you guys, that, that that passion comes through. That's why, I mean, I've seen Aaron lecture and I've heard you speak and I know that you're both passionate, so it's, that's fun. I love it. Thank you. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. It's brilliant. I've really enjoyed that. Like, it's yeah. just, you know, I, I get nervous on one place because I know very little about the subjects, but I feel more and more relaxed every time I'm in front of you. One, one, of, one of the things about paleontologists is that we work on geological timescales. So, you know, talking for a week or so is nothing. Uh, yeah. <laughs> we so can talk as long really as you want. It's just getting us to shut up that's the challenge. But, yeah. Love yeah. it. Um, thank you again. Thank and you. Guys, Welcome. Thanks thank for you me. for listening. <laughs>